Okay, hello there. It's Professor Tofano uh, talking to you today about uh, Chapter 17, Using Persuasive Strategies. So most of you are probably preparing for your persuasive speech, and hopefully you've already reviewed, read, and listened to the audio for Chapter 16. And now we're talking about Chapter 17, entitled, this chapter's titled, Using persuasive strategies. Okay, so we'll talk about their learning objectives first, and then we'll talk about what the outline looks like for the chapter. So learning objectives, identify and use strategies to improve your credibility. Next, use principles of effective reasoning and evidence to develop a persuasive message. Third, employ effective techniques of using emotional appeal in a persuasive speech. Fourth, adapt your persuasive message to receive, excuse me, to receptive, neutral, and unreceptive audiences. And lastly, identify new strategies for effectively organizing uh, your speech. And there's five points on the outline, enhancing credibility, using reason and evidence, using emotional appeals, strategies for adapting ideas to people and people to ideas, and strategies for organizing persuasive messages. So um, that is kind of the introduction to the chapter. According to uh, this uh, scholar named David C. Bryant, he says persuasion is the process of adjusting ideas to people and people to ideas. That is one uh, interesting way to think about persuasion. Uh, Some uh, books and some um, teachers will argue that uh, an attempt to persuade is in fact persuasion. Others will say unless someone is intellectually persuaded or physically persuaded, then persuasion uh, has not taken place. Uh, Further, Aristotle uh, has said that every utterance from humans is is in fact a persuasive message. So something as simple as uh, getting a hold of a friend and saying, hey, where should we go out to eat, or let's go eat here, let's go eat there, or let's go see this movie, um, even though those are kind of just um, interpersonal um, conversations with uh, friends, family members, there's still obviously a end goal in mind, which would be, I want you to go to the place that I want to go. So that would be persuasive in a sense, although it may not be an obvious stated goal, it would be implied for sure. So as a public speaker, um, you will um, be really clear in your intent that by the end of my speech, you will be convinced of X, Y, and Z. And then uh, for our speeches, because we have a call to action, meaning now that you have intellectually persuaded that person to adopt or agree or listen to or um, think more deeply about your uh, perspective on a topic. You want them to then uh, act on that information. So now that they are convinced intellectually, the next step is to get them to act. So obviously in a classroom, there will be no acting. They will be listening and any type of change in beliefs, attitudes, or values will be uh, uh, in their mental processes and their cognitive processes and then you could just hope if you are have been effective 
that uh, when they leave, that that information they will take with them and they will act upon that information. So that's ultimately uh, what you want them to do. So outcome-based persuasive speaking means that ultimately not, not only have they been moved uh, internally, mentally, cognitively, theoretically, but they will then act upon that information and make some behavior uh, change or some action. So for your speeches, you will say in the beginning, by the end of my speech, I will convince you of whatever that is you want them to be convinced of. And then uh, once they are convinced, at the end, you will ask them to join you, which is called a call to action, in implementing um, that idea, um, applying it to their lives. Okay, so enhancing credibility, identifying using strategies for improving credibility. Credibility is the audience's perception of a speaker's competence, trustworthiness, and dynamism. As a public speaker, especially one who wishes to persuade an audience, you hope your listeners will have a favorable attitude towards you and your ideas. So credibility is a very important component because people are not going to be convinced if they believe you are not credible. So credibility is not just a single factor or a single view of you on the part of your audience. It is really the, the, the totality of that experience that they have. To be credible, you should be perceived as competent, trustworthy, and dynamic. So to be a competent speaker is to be considered informed, skilled, or knowledgeable about one subject. And in a classroom setting, in a 16-week semester, you can uh, easily convince an audience that you are competent based upon your topic choice uh, as long as you can convince them that you have spent some time developing those ideas. So even if you just started considering those ideas for a couple of days or weeks, your audience can still interpret uh, that um, even if it's a short time uh, studying or thinking uh, about that topic, they can still consider you competent. Obviously, the longer that you've uh, dealt with the issue, you've processed the issue, you've experienced the issue, uh, the longer probably it's easier to be considered competent. But in a classroom setting, within a couple of weeks, you certainly can uh, be um, convince your audience that you're competent. Next, trustworthiness, a second major factor that influences your audience response is trustworthiness. Um, you must, you trust people whom you believe to be honest. You also can predict what they will do or say in the future. Earning an audience's trust is not something that you can do simply by saying, trust me. You have to demonstrate it through that uh, conversation that you'll have with us, that uh, six and a half to seven minutes that you'll talk to us. They use the example of sales, and I think it's a good example because uh, marketing and sales use um, all of these uh, theories of persuasion and these methods and techniques for sure. So when you decide to buy a product or purchase a service, uh, especially when you're dealing with a customer service person who's involved in that sales process, uh, trustworthiness is an important component of you deciding to agree and purchase. Thirdly, dynamism. A third factor in credibility is a speaker's energy, or known as dynamism. Uh, charisma is a form of dynamism. A charismatic person possesses charm, talent, 
magnetism, and other qualities that make the person attractive and energetic. So that um, it's, it's somewhat difficult to perfectly define all of those terms. But it's one of those things that when you experience it um, as an audience member, it, uh, it's pretty obvious. And I think I mentioned to you all the TED Talks. And if you go to uh, the YouTube machine and you look up some of those TED Talks, you'll see how dynamic and uh, charismatic those speakers are for sure. It says your credibility evolves over time from the beginning that you get out of your chair and you walk towards the podium, towards the front of the class. The All eyes are on you and anything um, that, well, what it's mainly uh, initially external attributes that they're evaluating and it normally would be maybe what you're wearing, how your hair looks, kind of your facial expressions, those kind of external attributes that initially audiences will be evaluating. And uh, the book calls that the initial credibility. Those are the initial impressions uh, of you, uh, even before you start speaking. Then, next is derived credibility. That's the perception the audience develops as they get to know you and as you're presenting your message. And then finally, terminal credibility is the perception the listeners have uh, when you are done speaking, that, that last impression or the totality of their uh, impressions is, con is cons uh, considered terminal credibility. So how do you improve your credibility? Uh, make a good impression. Establish common ground with your audience. Support your key arguments with evidence. Present a well-organized message. Deliver your message well. Use strategies to gain and maintain your audience's interest and also end with a good impression. So how do you make a good impression? So um, obviously um, the standard for our class is to uh, quote dress up or look as good as you can because uh, you will be judged partially um, by what you are wearing and how you look as you present. And that, that often is part of a first uh, impression and then also the first few things that you say will be very important. There's an old saying, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So that's kind of an interesting way to think about uh, your first impression. Establish common ground in your opening remarks. Indicates you share the values and concerns of your audience. Uh, next, support your arguments with evidence. And uh, that is important that you use evidence, facts, opinions, statistics, and examples. Present a well-organized message. Regardless of the organizational pattern you use, it's crucial that your message is logically structured and uses appropriate internal summary, signpost, and uh, number or enumerate your ideas. Um, deliver your message well. Good eye contact, a very important part of delivering your, your speech well, uh, which means you should memorize uh, various portions, uh, even if it's just the first few sentences of your introduction and at least the first, uh, the end of your speech, maybe the last few thing, uh, sentences of your summary so that you can spend time with excellent uh, eye contact with your audience. And use strategies to gain and maintain interest. Chap we have uh, two chapters on um, introduction and then one on conclusions that will uh, give you some ideas about how to gain their attention and then how to maintain them. But uh, listeners, as I've said uh, many, many times, will naturally not uh, be predisposed to listen. 
and even if they are, it would be very temporary and out of the totality of the time that you're speaking, they may be predisposed just for a few seconds even. People's attention span is much shorter today, uh, for sure, especially the younger the audience, probably the shorter the attention span. So uh, realizing all those things, it's important to say something to get their attention off of themselves onto you, and then as you continue your speech and then attempt to maintain interest to make sure that you are, again, saying things that will keep them uh, motivated and keep them focused on you, the speaker. End with a good impression. Um, again, maintain good eye contact and don't leave the lectern or speaking area until you are finished. Uh, sometimes students kind of rush their conclusion and then they quickly exit stage right. So just try to manage your time well so that you don't have to rush. So it could be a very natural uh, and sometimes students do a really good job in the introduction and the body and then uh, if they didn't manage their time well they end up rushing the conclusion. So don't do that. Okay. Using reasoning and evidence. Uh, use principles of effective reasoning and evidence to develop um, your persuasive message. And it says here, as we noted in chapter 5 when we discussed how to be a critical listener, so you can refer back to chapter 5 in that section on critical listening, logic is a formal system of rules for making inferences. So uh, logic is a very important component of an effective public uh, a persuasive speech. Reasoning is the process of drawing a conclusion from evidence. Reasoning is the process of drawing a, a logical conclusion from evidence. So, it does make s sense that if you provide no evidence or very little evidence, it's going to be hard to reason because you didn't give the listeners anything to reason from. Because wise audience members will be listening, persuasive speakers need to give careful attention to the way they use logic to reach a conclusion. Aristotle said that any persuasive speech has two parts. You really simplify this. First, you state your case. Second, you prove your case. It doesn't get any simpler than that um, statement from Aristotle. So, provide proof. Proof consists of the evidence that you offer plus the conclusion you draw from it. Proof consists of the evidence you offer plus the conclusion you draw from it. Proof is very important. And evidence in this case is made up of facts, examples, statistics, and opinions, or expert opinions, actually. So reasoning is the process you follow to reach a conclusion from the evidence. Reasoning is the process you follow to reach a conclusion from the evidence. So if there's no evidence, how can you possibly reason, which means whatever conclusion you come to, which you will, it may not be based upon any evidence. It may just be based upon what you thought, felt, or believed prior to the person speaking so that you will then be drawing a conclusion from your own opinions and your own thoughts versus from the evidence that the speaker presented. And oftentimes, even when a speaker provides solid evidence, a audience member is still using their, um, their own opinions or views uh, that pre-existed prior to listening to that specific message from that specific speaker. So we all have a confirmation bias, and that's very difficult to set aside when we listen, when we listen to uh, people 
especially when they present a perspective that we don't naturally agree with or dislike. Moving on to understanding types of reasoning, um, inductive and, um, well, we'll start with that one. Inductive reason. Reasoning that arrives at a general conclusion from a specific instances or examples is known as inductive reasoning. Uh, using the classical approach, you reach a general conclusion based upon specific examples, facts, sta uh, statistics, and opinions. You may not know for certain that the specific instances prove the conclusion is true, but you decide that in all probability the specific instances support a general conclusion. So according to uh, some contemporary uh, logicians, not a magician, someone who uses logic, uh, you reason inductively when you claim that an outcome is probably true because of specific evidence. For example, if you were given a speech attempting to convince your audience that foreign cars are unreliable, you might use inductive reasoning to make your point. You could announce that you recently bought a foreign car that gave you trouble. Your cousin also brought a foreign car that kept stalling on the freeway. Finally, one of your professors said that they also had a foreign car that broke down. So based upon those examples, uh, you can ask your audience to agree with the general conclusion that the foreign car is unreliable. Now you can tell how old this example is in the book. This is on page 330 because uh, trying to define what a foreign car is today is very complicated because even cars that are uh, put together in the United States often use parts that come from other countries. I'm not sure what the percentage of parts in a vehicle must be uh, manufactured, made, in the United States to, to make it count um, as a, an American car. I know there was some controversy about that years ago, that if 51% of the parts that the manufacturers use were manufactured outside the United States, then it, quote, couldn't be an American car. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, reasoning by analogy. Reasoning by analogy is a, is a special type of inductive reasoning. An analogy is a comparison. The form of inductive reasoning compares one thing, person, or process with another to predict how something will perform and respond. When you observe the two things have a number, when you observe that two things have a number of characteristics in common, and that a certain fact about one is likely to be true about another, you draw an analogy, reasoning from one example to reach the conclusion of another. So that is true. If you're trying to convince an audience that laws against using a cell phone while driving in a school zone have cut down injuries to children in Florida and Missouri, those laws should therefore be instituted in Kansas, you're reasoning by analogy. So if it work there, it'll work here. Something like that. That would be the analogy. Deductive reasoning, another type of reasoning. According to century-old perspective, reasoning from a general statement or principle that reaches a specific conclusion is called deductive reasoning. It's the opposite of inducting, inductive reasoning. So, deductive reasoning can be structured uh, using a major premise, minor premise, and a conclusion. We'll give you one example of this. Uh, it, on one hand, uh, teaching this is a bit complicated, but we often use deductive reasoning just as we go about our life. We deduce from what we know, and that just kind of makes sense. But he, here's an example of, it says, here's an example, uh, um, Anne, this fictitious individual here, person, was trying to convince the city council to refuse a building permit to, um, must be some big box retailer 
um, and a large chain discount store that wants to move into her town. And we all know that large chain discount stores are bad, and so we know that. So that's just embedded in this story. So uh, she believes, this would be Anne, that the new store would threaten her own business downtown. Mm, sure it would. That's how competition works. Uh, here's the deductive structure of the argument she advanced. The major premise, every time a large store moves into a small community, the merchants in the downtown area lose business and the town loses tax revenue from the downtown merchants. The minor pre uh, uh, premise would be her store is a, uh, oh, the big box store, uh, the bad uh, people, is a large discount store that wants to build a store in your town. And here's the conclusion. The big box store is permitted to open a store in our town. If they are, the merchants in the downtown area will lose business and the city will lose tax revenue. So that would be a, uh, using deduction to come to a conclusion. The strength of this argument rests on whether or not her major premise is true. Does the large box store, the bad people, uh, in fact, will it result in a loss of business for uh, the tax revenue from the downtown merchants? In constructing, constructing the argument for your persuasive message, assess the soundness of your major pre uh, premise. So that's an interesting story. So uh, if I own a small business in a downtown area, and a big box store opens outside the town, uh, probably uh, that could and, and probably would impact the revenue or sales at my store and would certainly reduce the revenue there. But then the big box store would make up for that lost revenue, but this person would still maybe lose their, uh, have business reduced and possibly have to go out of business. But it may also motivate the small business to be more creative on how they sell or merchandise or price their products. And so even if all those things were true about the major premise, um, the conclusion may not be accurate. So that's the idea about a major premise, seems about right. And then the minor pre premise seems about right, but we're not sure if that conclusion, if that deduction then um, is more likely to lead to that conclusion. So that's how deductive reasoning works. Causal reasoning, that's the one that uh, we'll spend probably most of the time on uh, we have in the, in the time we've been together for sure. Causal reasoning, when you reason by cause, you relate two more events in such a way as to conclude that one event caused the other. Most of you are familiar with the classic myth that CO2 um, in the air, more of it leads to um, the weather being bad, and then the weather being bad uh, leads to bad things happening with uh, people and animals and, and crops. That would be your classic uh, causal reasoning uh, myth, for sure. Fallacy, I would say. So um, those, that, that we uh, certainly understand. When, when reasoning from cause, you suggest that one thing actually caused another to occur. Now, you may not know if they're even related at all, if X or Y is a dependent, independent variable. For those of you that have studied some uh, scientific research um, techniques, oftentimes you don't know if the independent affects the dependent variable or it's the dependent variable that's actually impacting the independent variable. 
So this is the problem with cause, um, causal reasoning. So first, if you, uh, you have cause to effect, and then you also have effect to cause. So we'll start with cause to effect. One approach is to move from a known fact to predict a result. You know, for example, that the interest rates have increased in the past week. Interesting example, considering we're in the uh, pandemic um, virus time right now. But here's the example to use. Therefore, you may argue um, that because the rates are increasing, that um, then one other rate will decrease. It actually uses the example of meteorologists use the same method of reasoning when they predict the weather. They base a conclusion about tomorrow's weather and what they know about today's weather. Well, you cannot base um, a... Uh, you can't base your conclusion on anything other than what you know, because if you don't know something, it's really hard to base a conclusion on something you don't know. So even though that's probably true, that's an interesting way that they, they said that. But that is probably true how the weather uh, people, they will decide based upon um, what they know about today's weather and more likely what they know about the patterns uh, from the past that is more likely that tomorrow's weather will be very similar to the way it was uh, this time last year. Okay, secondly, from effect to cause. A second way to frame a causal argument is to reason backwards from the known effect to the unknown cause. So, uh, for example, a major earthquake has occurred. That's the known effect. To explain this event, you propose that the cause of the earthquake was a shift in the fault line. It's unknown, but you propose it. So you cannot be sure of the cause, but you're certain of the effect. All right. So there's a really good chart, uh, Table 17.1 on 335, I recommend. It gives you um, inductive reasoning, deductive reasoning, causal reasoning, and it kind of gives you a breakdown. Reasoning begins with, reasoning ends with, conclusions of reasoning is that something is, and the goal of reasoning is, and then give you some examples. So refer you to that table. Using types of evidence, facts, examples, opinions, and statistics. So all of you will do the best you can to use foes, facts, opinions, examples, and statistics. I just made an acronym for you, foes. Facts, opinions, examples, statistics. A fact is something that has been directly observed to be true or can be proven true. Um, inferences are like facts, but an inference is a conclusion based upon available or partial inf information. Most of the decisions we make in our life are based upon an inference because rarely do we have all the information that we need or um, most of the information that we need. So we normally have enough information to make a reasonable decision, and that would probably be an inference is a conclusion based upon the available information or partial information. But oftentimes, uh, people go way off base because they only have a bit of information, and they form a pretty solid uh, conclusion that they think is uh, logical and reasonable, even though it began with very little information or partial information. Examples or illustrations that are used to dramatize or clarify a fact. 
and examples are excellent and you should always use those to make your ideas clearer. Opinions can serve as evidence if they're expressed by an expert. So opinions are not bad, they can be considered evidence, but the qualifier is that must, they must be expressed by an expert. That is the key. Everyone has an opinion. They're not equally valid or equally valuable, and some of them are plain silly and ridiculous, and some of those are very smart. So opinions can serve as evidence if expressed by an expert. A statistic is a number used to summarize several facts or samples. And so uh, do the best you can to provide evidence that allows your audience to reason, to form the conclusion, to form a rational conclusion. You will need facts, and you will need opinions, you will need examples, and you will need statistics. Using evidence effectively. Use credible evidence. Where do you find cre credible evidence? Your listeners are more likely to respond to your argument when they believe the evidence you use is credible from a trustworthy, knowledgeable, and it says unbiased source, but there is no such thing. Um, so we'll just say a source that is fair. I think that's a better way to describe it since no one's unbiased. Um, re so remember, it's the listener, not you, who determines whether the evidence is credible. So you can bring evidence to your speech. You can provide it. And the audience could say to themselves, not credible. And that's why I've asked you to use news broadcasts, uh, websites, and newspaper uh, websites primarily to back up and defend your ideas. Uh, mostly, we trust the media. Now, on a scale of you know, how trustworthy they are, we generally, as a general idea, um, we have a pretty a solid trust in the media. So whatever their faults are, which are many, um, mostly we trust them. And probably most of the information they tell us is likely true. Uh, some of it is obviously untrue, but um, they are probably still considered um, trustworthy. So uh, your source should be trustworthy, knowledgeable, and fair. All right, so that is true. Use new evidence. Anything that is current is normally thought to be better than uh, something that is old. The thought is that current is refined and old is, uh, is not. Uh, use specific evidence. Use evidence to tell a story. Um, avoid, avoiding faulty reasoning. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. You all can go look up fallacies because to me this, is, uh, this stuff is a little bit technical for our class, but um, I guess as, a, as a, an, a good statement, avoid faulty reasoning. So if you want to just do that, that would be great, but you'd have to understand fallacies. So look that up, but I'll just define it here. A fallacy is false reasoning that occurs when someone attempts to persuade without adequate evidence or with arguments that are irrelevant or inappropriate. So they have a couple of different fallacies here. Uh, you can look those up. There's, I don't know how many there are. There's probably more than 20, but they, uh, they list, I think, about seven or eight here. Uh, the one that I'll just stop on briefly is ad hominem. And if you know Latin, that means uh, to the man, I guess, technically. But that means attacking a person. And um, that is what we all do when we're kids and we're growing up and we're juvenile. And sometimes uh, when people don't 
technically grow up, they still resort to ad hominem attacks. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Twitter is such a garbage heap, is because anytime somebody disagrees, I shouldn't say anytime, but there's a high likelihood that if someone dis you say something that somebody disagrees with, that they will then attack you, the person, uh, instead of the idea. It's just an immature, uh, simple way that may make people feel good to call the person a name or to mock uh, that person or try to intimidate them even instead of dealing with the argument. Uh, it happens even with adults. So this is one that um, all of my listeners should um, do the best you can to avoid attacking a person, making fun of their hair, their face, race, culture, ethnicity, just the way they talk, all those things, to um, just focus on the, uh, the ideas and or the arguments or the um, propositions to then uh, analyze those and then critique that and not critique the person. It is a very mature, safe way, a smart way, and if you do it that way, you encourage continued dialogue with people about the variance, about our differences when you focus on the immutable characteristics of a person and uh, not on their ideas it leads to um, people um, running away and hiding and people threatening and bullying other people so as a basic admonition uh, do the best you can when you hear an idea that you dislike and you want to respond to it Try not to say things that um, are uh, a criticism of the individual or their characteristics, but rather the argument. I know it's hard. We all struggle with that. Okay, so I'm moving on. That's about the only one I would, I would say. Using emotional appeals. Effective speakers know how to use emotions to make a point. Uh, emotions are an important component uh, of a persuasive speech. Aristotle says there's uh, three ways to prove your case, if you remember. Logos and uh, pathos and ethos. And so the logos is supposed to be the logic of the argument. The ethos is the ethics of the speaker. And then pathos is the emotion. And you do have to consider uh, how you will use emotional appeals uh, to convince. A, public, a persuasive speaker attempts to... Um, discuss and talk to the person's um, mind uh, and their head as a metaphor and their heart or their emotions or pathos as that metaphor. So a, a good persuasive speech deals with the head and the heart. If you just focus on logic and don't use emotion, you will not be successful. If you focus primarily on emotion and not logic, you will not be successful. So you have to find the proper balance there is no perfect uh, mathematical equation. My best guess is probably 80% logic, 20% um, emotion. But you'll get other people that will uh, make other um, um, arguments for the proper um, ratio. So that's, that's my ratio. Use emotion-arousing words. Tell stories with emotional message. Use nonverbal behavior to communicate your emotional responses. Use visual images if you are going to use a visual aid to generate uh, emotion. Use metaphors and simile. A metaphor is an implied comparison between two things. The person who says, Our lives are quilts upon which we stitch the patterns of our character 
If you don't pay attention to the ethical dimensions of the decisions you make, you'd be more likely to make a hideous pattern in your life quilt. Yeah, that, that's, that's a metaphor. So a simile makes a direct comparison between two things using like or as, if you remember from your English classes or maybe you're taking them now. Here's an example. Not visiting your academic counselor regularly regularly is like being a gambler in a high-stakes poker game. You're taking a big chance that you're, that you're taking the correct courses. Okay. Like or as. Use fear appeals. Uh, the threat that uh, harm will come to your listeners unless they follow your advice is an appeal to fear. And these are very, very uh, successful, actually. So, for example, you'll be killed in an auto accident unless you wear your seatbelt. I know at this point that's uh, for young audiences, but when I was growing up, uh, a lot of times the first car that we had didn't even have seatbelts. And if they did, hardly anyone wore them. So certainly over the last 50 years, things have changed. But that, that would be an example, showing, an ex uh, showing someone that just uh, got into a car accident, even a minor one, and got seriously injured or killed because they didn't have a seatbelt on, and then showing uh, someone that got into a major accident that had their seatbelt on. And another, I think you would, another example that might be a better one is the um, AT&T commercial about texting. Um, since I'm doing this um, extemporaneous, I'm not, not looking it up, but um, yeah, maybe I'll look it up. But uh, it, I think it's a powerful um, uh, commercial or a powerful... Um, they're talking about um, cell phones and uh, texting and driving. Um, so that one is a very powerful. In fact, I recommend it um, because it is such a, a powerful speech that, uh, excuse me, a powerful video that uh, it may actually, you know, convince. And I think it would, um, it could help convince people that uh, they shouldn't text and drive. Um, all right, hold on. I'm going to get it because I'm talking now. Let me see about texting. So I'm taking just a second to look it up because it's powerful. I think you should all go to it. Okay, what's it say? Close to home, it can wait. So if you're going to look this up, close to home, it can wait, AT&T. Um, and it's a really powerful uh, video about texting and driving. I think that's actually a much better example of a very successful fear appeal. Because I think if you watch that, that uh, video, it says it's three minutes and 53 uh, seconds long, uh, it'd be hard not to be moved emotionally. And I also hope that some of you that are still texting and driving, maybe it will convince you, persuade you, and primarily uses emotion for sure. So if you can check that out, um, close to home, it can weigh AT&T. It's, I think, maybe two years old now. Okay, so consider using appeals in several uh, uh, appeals to several emotions: hope, pride, courage, and reverence. Right. Um, it also says tap into the uh, audience members' beliefs, uh, shared myths. Often people talk about um, a myth as if something as something that is factually untrue. The Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and Santa Claus are often labeled myths. I don't know why they label that. Of course, there's an Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy, and Santa Claus. I'm not sure what the author is talking about, so disregard that. But in a rhetorical sense, a myth is a belief held in common by a group of people based on their values, culture, heritage, and faith. A myth may be factual or it may be based on partial truth that a group believes it to be true. So myths are really important uh, for culture and for, um, for groups to um, gain some consensus or rally around 
certain ideas, myths for, for, are certainly one of them. Um, using emotional appeals ethically, regardless of which emotions you can use to motivate your audience, you have an obligation to be ethical and, false, uh, and forthright. Making false claims, misusing evidence to arouse emotions, or relying only on emotions without offering evidence to support a conclusion validates those ethical standards of public speaking, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Okay, strategies for adapting ideas to people, people to ideas, persuading a receptive audience, identify with your audience, clearly state your speaking objective, tell your audience what you want them to do, ask listeners for an immediate show of support, um, that we're not going to do because we're doing platform speaking, so we don't want the audience to engage the speaker. Uh, use emotional appeals effectively, make it easy for your listeners to act. Uh, that one I wholeheartedly agree with, especially in the call to action. So if you're going to tell them to uh, vote for something, let them know when the vote's coming. Let them know the phone number, who to call, the name of the, of the representative. Be very, very detailed. Uh, next, persuading a neutral audience. Capture your listeners' at attention early in the speech. Uh, refer to beliefs that the listeners may share. Relate your topic not only to your listeners, but also to their families, friends, and loved ones. Yes. So you're going to actually be appealing to not only them, the, the current audience, but also people they will interact with in their lives. Be realistic about what you can accomplish. And then uh, lastly, persuading an unreceptive audience. Don't immediately announce your plan to change their mind. Begin your speech by noting areas of agreement before you discuss areas of disagreement. Don't expect a major shift in attitude without a hostile audience. Don't expect a major shift in attitude from a hostile audience. Acknowledge the opposing point of view that members of your audience may hold. Establish your credibility. Consider making understanding rather than advocacy your goal. It's an interesting um, approach. Okay, so now um, we're going to end this uh, chapter with uh, strategies for organizing persuasive messages. Is there one best way to organize a persuasive speech? The answer is no. Specific approaches to organizing speeches depend on the audience message and desired objective, but how you organize your speech does have a major effective, uh, effect on how your listeners will respond. So here's a couple of ideas. If you feel your audience may be hostile to your point of view, advance your strongest arguments first. Do not bury key arguments and evidence in the middle of your message. If you want your listeners to take some action, it's best to tell them what you want, um, want them to do at the beginning of your speech um, and then uh, remind them at the end. When you think your listeners are well informed and familiar with your disadvantages of your proposal, it's usually better to present both sides rather than just advance your position. Now that worked for the uh, pro-con speeches on the informative side, but I don't recommend that for your persuasive uh, speak speeches. Make reference to counter-arguments and then refute them with evidence and logic, a very good technique. Adapt, um, um, all right, what's the next one? Oh, okay, strike that last one. Okay, problem solution. The most basic organizational pattern for persuasive speech is to make the audience aware of a problem and then present a solution that clearly solves it. And that's the one that probably most of you will focus on. It is probably the easier uh, approach. You may go with problem, cause, solution, which is another variation of that. But, and that would be, the cause would be a kind of a bonus, but at least problem solution. So let me see what else we're going to highlight here. Or we can go with cause and effect. Like the problem solution pattern to which it's closely related, the cause and effect approach, uh, which was talked a bit about in Chapter 9, uses uh, a, another organizational strategy. 
you can use two basic approaches from effect to cause, from cause to effect. One way to use the cause and effect method is to begin with an effect or a problem and then identify the cause of the problem. The next one, from cause to effect, you can also recognize a message by noting the problem and then spelling out the effects of the problem. So those are two ways. And then lastly, we'll talk about motivated sequence, uh, and then we'll probably be at about 50 minutes, which is kind of long, so hopefully you're pausing this and getting back to it. Motivated sequence, um, there's uh, five steps to it. Attention, need, satisfaction, visualization, and then action. So attention, your first goal is to get your listener's attention. Secondly, in need, having gotten their attention, you need to establish why your topic, your problem, or issue should concern them. Third, satisfaction. After you present the problem or the need for concern, briefly identify how your plan will satisfy the need. Fourth, visualization. Now you need to give your audience a sense of what it would be like if the solution that you proposed was actually adopted. And then lastly, action. The last step forms the basis of your conclusion. You tell your audiences the specific action that they can take to implement your solution. And that on our speech evaluation form is in the conclusion, call to action. Okay, and then on page 360, the last page of chapter 17, I recommend another table, 17.2, organizational patterns for persuasive messages, and that kind of summarizes those various organizational patterns. Okay, that was a bit long. It's about 46 minutes, but I will be uh, uh, looking forward to feedback from you all, uh, but chapter 17 and 16 work together. Uh, those two chapters are necessary to gain a, an understanding of persuasive speaking prior to you presenting your speeches. So hopefully this was enjoyable, useful, and uh, it will be valuable uh, to use these ideas. Okay, bye-bye.